pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu rou pian. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hola, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is one of the most acclaimed food critics in Paris. He grew up in Connecticut, but for the last 30 years, the City of Lights is his home. He was the European correspondent for Gourmet Magazine for 10 years. He has written about food and travel for several magazines and newspapers, from the New York Times to Travel and Leisure Magazine. He's the author of Hungry for Paris. The Ultimate Guide to the City's 110 Best Restaurants, Hungry for France, Adventures for the Cook and Food Lover. Most recently, he released the memoir, My Place at the Table, a recipe for a delicious life in Paris. He also has won several James Beard Awards. Alexandre Lobrano, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Very casually, before we hit record, you are in Greece right now, right? That's right. <laughs> How's Greece? I've never been to Greece. Do you like it? Um, I, I do like it. I know Greece quite well. I mean, having lived in Europe for 30 years, I've traveled a great deal. There's a really joyous mood here today, David, because the tourism is, re- is starting and everybody is elated to finally be able to move again. And I think a very large part of that, of that happiness is the fact that we're able to go to restaurants because we've all been cooking and cooking and cooking nonstop for a year and a half. And for me, the, I got here on uh, Wednesday, and it seems miraculous that I can go to restaurants and order things that I haven't actually made to eat myself. Yeah. Are you the opinion as well that when everything opens fully, you know, everywhere, people will just stop cooking again? That whole sourdough um, movement you think will keep going? Are people like, no? I think there'll be a euphoria, a, a, a momentary euphoria when people start going to restaurants again. But I do think that this trauma... Uh, will have left us with a changed relationship with food because I think that will many people across many different countries will be more sensitive to the quality of ingredients, uh, the produce, because they've had, they have a more intimate relationship with food than they've had many of them for a long time. And I think that on the one hand, I think that people will be looking for the creativity of food that a chef could make. And on the other hand, there, there's an on, will be an ongoing preference for healthy, wholesome, simpler food. Before we start, two important questions. I think I know the answer, but have you ever been to Portugal? Yes, I have been to Portugal many times. And you love it, right? I love do. Love it, Portugal. all of that. And, Fantastic. Yeah. I was there last fall. I was in central Portugal. I was in Coimbra. Mm-hmm. Um, I went up into the mountains uh, west of Coimbra. The food is spectacular in Portugal, as you know, since you're Portuguese. I can't say it. People always say that I'm biased for some reason. I cannot open my mouth and say anything good about Portugal, so I have to let my guests do it. No, well, I'm okay. Well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to oblige. Um, what I love about Portugal is, for example, if you pull over in the countryside to some simple tavern or inn just to have a quick lunch for 10 euros, nine times out of 10, you're going to have delicious local uh, seasonal food that has been cooked with enormous attention, generosity, and a desire to please. Um, I think Portugal has a, from the top, where there are brilliant chefs working in all over the country right now, to the simpler, simpler side of things, it, it's a fantastic gastronomic destination. Again, I agree, but I can't say these things. <laughs> Do you know any Portuguese words? I know obrigado. 
I know. Um, I speak French, Italian, and a little bit of Spanish. So when I go to Portugal, I don't speak Portuguese, but it's so, once you have all those Latin roots in your head, um, you throw a few things together and come right, something. And I can read yeah. a menu and I make my way. Yeah. yeah. So are you a good cook? I am a very good cook, but I quickly learned my limits. You know, I mean, af after 16 months of nonstop cooking, I went through the cycle of things that I cook well. I cook certain French dishes. I cook certain American comfort food dishes. My father's family uh, was originally from New Orleans. So I cook uh, food from New Orleans like uh, jambalaya and shrimp creole and things like that. Um, but I was uh, hitting the bottom in terms of, you know, looking for new, new taste profiles and new ways to prepare you know, available food, because, you know, when you're cooking two meals a day, it's harder to be that inventive. And I think that for me, my experience, especially as someone who's a professional relationship with food, is that I am more grateful and aware of the culinary professions and what they offer us and what they provide for us. I think that in many of the world's big cities, we took it for granted. We just took it for granted that any night of the week, we'd go out and you know have a huge choice of different types of restaurants to eat in. When that stopped, it was very humbling. And I think it reminded people, cooking is really hard work. On um, global media or global television right now, cooking shows often place a huge emphasis on uh, creativity, and there's a lot of creativity in cooking. But what they don't show is the hard physical labor and the hours that go into cooking, um, which is time consuming and exhausting. And um, so I think that the fairy tale version of cooking, which is, which, which is what you see on TV, has been pushed off page by, by the, uh, the COVID pandemic. People are always shocked when I say I don't like to cook at home. I don't, I'm like, not surprised. It was like, really? You don't make like homemade raviolis at midnight? I was like, not at That's no, not happening. No, no, no. I love to work. I love to work in the kitchen when I'm in the kitchen, but mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people goes home and some people are shocked. That's why also chefs, as you very well know, normally they have very bad diets. You know, unless you have someone at home that might do a lot of cooking as well. Otherwise, they just don't eat well because right. it's, it's difficult. It's long You're hours. You're eating on the fly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. So what's the dish that sometimes you, you know, that you can tell the crowd really loves that you can very proudly say, I know how to do that. Um, that I cook? Yeah, something really good that you make. I make one of the French dishes I'm really good at is Blanquette de Veau, which I mentioned in my book. I was, when I first moved to Paris and was living on the left bank in an apartment uh, below my landlady and landlord. Um, my landlady was a French countess. Her husband was a retired British diplomat, and they invited me to Sunday lunch. What we discovered coming from completely different worlds is that the countess and I had a great affinity, a commonality, which was that we both adore cooking and food. And she, you know, the dish she first served me, which I talked about in my book, was Blanquette de Veau. And her little, her little secret was that she put some pickled lemon into it, um, salted lemon, uh, because she'd grown up in Morocco, which is a genius thing, by the way. Anybody yeah. who's planning to make Blanquette de Veau should play with this idea. Maybe a third of a a pickled lemon chopped very, 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 very fine, but season it gently so you don't ruin the dish. It really depends on your own taste. Um, but I'm good with Blanquette de Veau. I'm, I'm great with everything Italian. I'm good with... You're getting um, excited here, Alec. I just ask a few. You're getting you very excited. <laughs> I mean... 
<laughs> no, it's like, I'm joking. I didn't, I didn't mean to run away with the menu. Here. <laughs> I mean, we have a full-on menu now. So I know the story, but for people that don't know, why did you move to Paris from Connecticut in 1986? When was it? No. I um I had actually I was already living in London. Um, I was working in London and working as a a book editor and writer. But I heard about a job opening uh, working for a par- uh, an American publishing company in Paris as a fashion journalist. Anyone who's seen me walk by knows that I'm not particularly interested in fashion. Um, but it would, turned out, I thought to myself, that it was for a company I'd worked for in New York before. Uh, they liked me in New York. And I thought, gosh, if I got this job, this would be my flying carpet to, to Paris, which is where I had always wanted to go. I'd already, I had done I had studied in London and then I lived in London the second time. So I wanted to get across the English channel and um, Paris was my goal. And um, to my surprise, they hired me and I got the job and moved to Paris. And very quickly, I started trying to write about food instead of clothing because I just, I mean, fashion is actually an interesting subject because it is a sociological, a very powerful sociological manifestation in the present. But my interest was food and has always been food. So what are the common things between food and fashion? I think that they are, I mean, I think that they express in a very direct way. I mean, there's certain cultural cultural preferences that come across instantly when you sit down at the table. I mean, in fashion, that's true, too. I mean, today, for example, even in Paris, Paris is still a much more conservative and more, it's a very elegant city. And elegance is based on restraint. And uh, what's not shown is as important as what is shown. And that's what creates this elegance. And it's, it's teasing. And that's true of French food, too. You know, there's, there's an enormous subtlety a subtlety that's almost been overwhelmed by the modern preference for really strong flavors, you know, uh, fermented food, for example, which is popular all over the world right now, smoked food, which is very powerful. These are big, big, big flavors. French food is, is um, shy, reserved, sort of, you know, uh, flirtatious. And that's, that's, you know, you see that in a lot of the fashion too. What was the first memory when you arrived in Paris? Do you remember? Uh, the first memory was of waiting in the cab rank in the rain at the Cardinal because, you know, at, at that time it was before the Eurostar. So I had gotten up and lugging huge suitcases, had taken a train to Dover, then, then a horrible boat from Dover to. It was the end of a really exhausting long journey. <laughs> and, you know, my getting into the taxi and realizing just how bad my high school French that I learned in Connecticut actually was. Again, it was adequate when I visited Paris as a tourist, but it yeah. was, it scared, it scared the wits out of me because I thought, Jesus, I'm in, in perhaps way over my head. <laughs> so that was my first. What was the first thing that you ate in Paris? Do you remember? The first thing I ate was a withered hot dog that I bought from a street stand in the Rue de Bussy because my hotel that I was staying was in the Rue de Bussy. I was starving when I finally got to the hotel. I went out trying to find something to eat. Um, it was too late. And the only thing that was open was sort of a, a very bad all night bakery. But the first time ever in Paris was uh, with my mother and my two brothers uh, um, when I was 14. And it was a croque monsieur. Uh, which you may know is uh, it's, uh, you know, there's a similar version of that sandwich in, in Porto, but um, ham, bechamel sauce, and then cheese, and you run it under the grill. And for me, a grilled cheese sandwich is a great trope of American comfort food. But with bech- bechamel sauce, 
oh my God, this was like suddenly finding yourself on cloud nine. I mean, it was yeah. unbelievably delicious. I yeah. couldn't believe that this in this place, they even knew how to make something as simple as a grilled cheese sandwich so good. And you made a reference about the sandwich in Porto that's called Francesinha. Exactly. Which is if someone really is craving a heart attack, that's the best thing to eat because next day it's very likely it's delicious. I think it's better, but yeah, it, it has all all sorts of meats inside as well, and has like a beer kind of gravy and sometimes a fried egg on top. Yeah, uh, if there's any similarities at all, what do you can point between Paris and Connecticut? Between Paris and Connecticut, gosh, I know those um, are the hard questions. That is a hard question. I mean, I grew up where I grew up. It was very, you know, it was the suburbs of uh, Connecticut, suburbs of New York City. I think that the main thing that they share, perhaps, is um, a, an enormous respect for culture and education. I mean, I uh, grew up in Westport, Connecticut, which is about 60 miles from New York. And the public schools that were outstanding, which is why we live there. The importance attached by French culture to uh, quality, school, quality schooling and educating children about their, their culture was something that was, that was also very common in New England. For, to be a good food critic, do you necessarily have to be a good cook? I don't think you have to be a good cook, but I don't understand the idea. I mean, I feel that, for example... Pre-COVID, I was I go out usually four or five times a week, but I never go out on the weekend because for me it's the best night of the week to go out to a Paris restaurant is Thursday. By then the kitchen is up and running. I mean all of the the bouillon, all the things that are needed to cook have been created. It's the, the you know the kitchen is a running purring machine by then. The weekend most restaurants get overwhelmed and it's a completely different clientele than it is during the week. I mean during the week it's 100% Parisian, you know with some tours. I don't, so that I stay in on the weekend and cook and go to the market on, on Saturday mornings. And I feel that I need for myself to continue to have a simple intimate relationship with food and the seasons and everything else. And also to move away from chef cooked food to what I'm capable of on the weekends. So that on Monday, when I start going out again, my palate is refreshed and I never find myself blasé. You know, I mean, I'm always a fresh and enthusiastic subject when I sit down at the table. And I feel that this is my responsibility uh, out of respect for any chef who, are, if, I, if I'm going to presume to judge the cooking of another person, I owe that person the, uh, an alert and enthusiastic palate when I come in and sit down to eat his or her food. Yeah. Have you found a lot of resistance from chefs? Because food has in a lot of things very personal, right? Something that you might love i might not like it and you know i work in an environment so at the embassy people don't choose the menus so i kind of have to kind of decide what 16 people would probably would like so you have to be very careful right because for instance i love octopus but it's very tricky if you're going to serve octopus because some people are just not going to like octopus especially in the us it's going to be difficult since it's so personal do you find sometimes or throughout your life that resistance with chefs because chefs sometimes can be like oh he comes here and then writes something about it Because it's a tricky business, right? And then, you know, the Yelps of this world, the trip advisors of this world is like amateur food critics that they say like, no, this place is horrible. Yeah. And it's, it's a very difficult thing. So how would you explain all of that? You know, it's the difference between being objective and subjective, David, is that for me, I mean, I have, for example, if I don't feel well, I go to the doctor. I don't doubt the doctor's expertise. I still believe that even in a crowdsourced world where 
the internet has democratized and entitled and empowered people to express their opinions, which is brilliant. I mean, a lot of those crowdsourced things are interesting to look at. Um, and yet, on the other hand, I deeply believe in expertise. I am able, for example, as you mentioned before, there's fruits that perhaps I don't particularly like, but I'm able to tell when they're well cooked. And by dint of having eaten professionally for more than 30 years, not in France, most of all, but also in Italy and Spain and everywhere, um, and speaking a variety of different languages and also knowing a fair amount about wine, um, I bring a, a great, very, a very deep experience to the table in terms of being able, for example, to make, to see when something is really original, to see it's, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, a piano keyboard. There's certain things you have to respect. I mean, there's certain notes that go well together and others don't. So for me, I think that we're living in an era of iconoplasm and idol smashing. Um, and I think that a lot of people have trouble with the idea of, I mean, a lot of people insist on an egalitarian idea of critical opinion, whether it's a, a movie or a meal or whatever it might be. I would say that you have every right to express your opinion. I mean, your interest, your opinion interests me, but I would also say that I am willing to accept that there are people in the world, whether it's a, a, a dance critic or an art critic or a doctor or a food writer who actually knows more than I do and read that person with respect and interest in the hopes that I might learn something more. Yeah, I always say that our uh, job is a little ungrateful because anyone can judge our food just by looking, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say like, ah, oh, that food is horrible. They don't even try it, but just looking, it's, our, one, of the, it's one of the few jobs as soon as you see it, you judge the chef right away. And that can be very tricky, right? Because some people are like, mm, that's, that doesn't look good. It can be amazing. But one of our problems in our profession is that like, any, if I post a picture today on Instagram about whatever sandwich, people almost will judge if you're a good chef or not just because of the sandwich, how it looks. This is, a, this is a real danger. I mean, uh, you know, for a lot of people, and this is why the, the, the restaurant landscape in Paris is changing so much right now. Um, uh, a lot of people are getting, using Instagram as their primary resource for restaurant information. And um, Instagram is great. And it's a tease. It's a fun place for chefs to play. I post food to Instagram. Um, and yet on the other hand, In the same way that when you meet someone, you have a, you have a reaction to their appearance, but then you, you don't know them. You don't really know anything about them. You can find them attractive or not attractive or whatever, but to actually get to know that person takes some time and it requires some patience and it requires some sincere curiosity. And I would say the same thing about food. I mean, you know, you sit down, appearances are important, but again, Uh, we live in a hugely visual world between uh, television and, and nonstop uh, imagery being put out there. Um, and a lot of cooks are cooking dishes that are specifically designed to look good on Instagram, which is okay, I suppose. But for me, the most important thing is, you know, what does it taste like? And there's no way to communicate. That's my job. I explain how this taste was built. And that's what I find absolutely fascinating about my work and fascinating about your work. What is the thing that you have to try that you really don't like? And sometimes, you know, it's in a dish and you're like, ugh, here we go. There's not much anymore that I just completely, I, I, would, it, I would confess one thing. I am not a major lover of kidneys. I have run into kidneys. I eat sweetbreads, I eat brains, I eat, you know, um, as an American, and you know the American palate. 
when I moved to Paris, I didn't eat any of that stuff. And I was squeamish about all kinds of stuff. In my book, I talk about eating foie gras for the first time and just dreading it when I saw what it was and it was coming toward me as a gift from a chef for me to try. I eat everything now, but I'm never going to be a, you're never going to see me rushing at a kidney dish. The last 20 years, food scene in Paris, how would you describe it? Because food for chefs, especially, you know, in the 80s, 90s, France was the thing, and then changed to Spain. And then, you know, from Spain, now the last 10 years, it's Scandinavian food is a thing. And now more and more is coming to South America and Central America. So you can see like trends, right? Especially for professional chefs. So how would you describe the last 20 years of foods of the food scene in Paris? What has gotten worse and what has gotten better? I would tell you, David, that we eat better in Paris today than we, we did when I moved here. Um, what's happened is there, it's like adding the rings to a tree. I mean, there was, there was bistro cooking. There was the cuisine bourgeoise that Julia Child fell in love with. There's old cuisine. I mean, these, these all existed when I showed up. What's been added to the genius, the genius ring that's been added to France, that this, the choices of French cooking is, is modern bistro cooking. And that's why, I mean, this happened, as you, as you mentioned, in the 80s. And Yves Candibot was one of the first. And it, it was a whole thing where, where young chefs decided not to follow a traditional gastronomic career and try to make Michelin-starred restaurants. Instead, they opened bistros and they used their high, you know, their haute cuisine training to cook uh, bistro food. Um, they incorporated a lot of the ideas of the la nouvelle cuisine, less butter, less cream, all that stuff, more fresh herbs, citrus, deeply reduced uh, stock, you know, jus, jus de viande, jus de whatever. Um, and they created a new, t- a whole new type of French cooking, which was kind of, um, I mean, it was brilliant and it got a lot, of, it got a lot of press, but it was overshadowed by the rise of Spain. Um, I mean, the food media, media's job is to push the story. And, you know, people said, and there was a lot of schadenfreude with that too. I mean, there was the, the wanting to push France off of its pedestal. What I would say about that, I love Spain deeply. And, I, and I, there's some brilliant cooks in Spain and I like traditional Spanish food too. But the, the most important thing that's happened since I've been doing my work is this contemporary French bistro cooking because it really birthed everything that's happened since then. I mean, everything that's happened everywhere, this new way of looking at how to construct a dish and how to use ingredients and how to try to create flavorful, healthy food um, to play with upstairs, downstairs game of using luxury ingredients in a dish that's otherwise made with something cheap, like really inexpensive fish or with truffles or some such thing. Um, I think that the French are, there is this uh, reserve. Um, they don't put themselves forward. I mean, I think that the French have also succeeded in teaching the entire Western world to be interested in cooking because there is a passion for food that exists in, in everywhere in the world now. We live in a, a global food community as has almost never existed before. We know what people are cooking in Tokyo and Buenos Aires and everywhere. But I think that France is the contribution or the creation of French Contemporary French bistro cooking is the most important and interesting thing that's happened in the world since I've been doing this. And I've been to Scandinavia and there's some fascinating stuff going on up there. But so you could say to me, Alec, is France still the world's best 
uh, gastronomic destination. And I'd say it is one of the world's best gastronomic destinations. But in certain levels there, the French have a certain supremacy that will never go away. And it's the most gastronomically literate country in the world. The French are passionate about food. It has spectacular produce. And the exigence of a French culinary education is like being in the army. I mean, I spent a lot of time in French cooking schools and there is a right and a wrong way of doing absolutely everything, which is why it amuses me to watch cooking, cooking school television because it has nothing to do with what actually happens in a kitchen. Yeah. Um, and the seriousness with which the French, anybody, any French or international student in a French cooking school goes about learning how to do the right way of making something like making a bouillon or making whatever it is, is it's spectacular. It moves me. It moves me every time I watch these things going on. Um, so yes, there are the big wheels of fashion that keep spinning. And it's brilliant that other parts of the world which have brilliant cooking traditions have found their place at the table, like Peru or you know other places but I don't, and there's room for everyone. You know, there's room for everyone. I think what's changed is it's no longer hegemonic with France at the very top of the totem pole and everybody else going down. And I also think even that idea isn't inter interesting anymore. What's interesting is to discover and explore the food ways of different cultures in different countries and enjoy them. But I continue to also have amazing respect for what the French have done and will continue to do. The important question, your book, My Place at the Table, what was the idea, what was the inspiration for the book? I've been lucky enough. I mean, I've had a food career that will never exist again in, in history because the most of the meals that I ate were paid for by, for example, by Gourmet Magazine. The way that we worked was that I was as anonymous going into a restaurant. I mean, I didn't, no one knew that I was a journalist and I would go in, make a reservation, go in and eat a meal. For example, when I first ate at El Bulli, uh, Ferran Adria's restaurant, I ate there four times in a row. The magazine paid for four meals in a row. I was there with a friend who came with me. And then it was, I had made an appointment to interview Ferran, but you know, it was after having eaten his food for four times uh, in the most objective of ways because I was paying the bill. Now, for because of the lack of economic resources and the way the media is evolving and changing, nobody will have that occasion anymore. I mean, most people now are, you know, you pay for it out of your own pocket because there are no expenses anymore, or you get invited by a, um, a press attaché. The importance of press attachés in the world of gastronomy is, is they're vital. I mean, they help chefs build careers and, and, and put out information. Um, but my, my ability to be anonymous and um, honest, I mean, point blank honest, not, never tempering an opinion because I thought, well, you know, I really, I don't want to antagonize these people because they invited me for the meal. That's not coming back. I don't see that coming back. And what worries me, frankly, right now is that all, uh, all over the world, a lot of places, magazines, newspapers are eliminating their restaurant, their food columns, dialing them down. One of the two largest food magazines in France, L'Express, just that, you know, it was one of the most important food columns in the whole country. It went up in smoke six months ago. It's gone. And they don't cover food anymore. There was a restaurant column, but it was also ingredients. They covered wine. They covered all kinds of things. Just gone. Why is that since food is a big trend? Uh, again, for economics, you know, I mean, I think that to, to do this, to do this, you know, if you're going to do this professionally, 
and do it honestly is really extremely expensive. And I think people are backing up from that. So I think that what we're seeing now, and it's not all gloom and doom, what you're seeing is the, an explosion of really fascinating stuff on Substack, you know, the, the self-publishing platform. There's some really, really brilliant food writers and wine writers on Substack writing in many different languages about many different subjects. I think that the idea of a uh, food magazine, for example, in you know, a mass market food magazine is it's falling apart. Uh, it's very hard to make that work. There's some places that it still works. Der Feinschmecker in, in Germany is still an excellent magazine. Australian Gourmet Traveler is a beautiful magazine. I mean, and they're very successful in their respective markets. It's hard in France, it's hard in the UK, it's hard in the US. Um, so looking at this cha these changes, I felt that I had um, done a whole journey of 30 years of living in France is, you know, um, half my lifetime. And the whole project of been thinking about it, it kind of dropped, you know, gently dropped into my lap, like a ripe peach or something. And food is so personal and it's so much defined my life and my work that I wanted to sort of do a, you know, describe my odyssey, describe my journey. My journey is certainly you know, inshallah and God hoping is far from over. Um, but I wanted to sort of do a, um, to tell this story, to bring it, to, to write about my life and to make me and food the main characters and um, to bring it up to the point that I'm at right now where I still love writing about food, but I also very much love, love writing. So these, you know, these food, writing, reading, traveling, these are my passions. And since it's your story in the book, was it hard to expose something or no? or to expose yourself? I mean, you, you did throughout your life, but this was a more personal level. But this was, you know, um, I was lucky, uh, David, because I have a brilliant editor, a woman named Rex Martin, who was really involved in food publishing and food books in the US for a long time. And we worked really intensely together. And, you know, when I would submit chapters to her, she'd come back to me sometimes and say, you know, Alec, the story that this is fine. She said, I would not have bought your book if I didn't think you were a very good writer. But you're not telling me the story that I want to read. What is off page is more interesting than what you sent to me. Whatever it is that's over there in the shadows is what I need to be hearing about right now. So she pushed me. And there were parts of my book that are extremely painful and, and traumatic and things that I did not originally intend to put into the public realm. But it was a huge gift because what I learned was that, you know, once you stop hiding something uh, because you feel shame about it, you put it out in the, in, in, the, in the sunlight and it loses its power and loses its power over me or in the world. Um, and what that does is it means that you're living in the present instead of protecting or, or concealing something that happened in the past. Um, so that very personal aspect of, my, of the book was not something that I originally intended, but it, it turned out to be, I think, the motor of telling the story unexpectedly to me. And I had to, you know, when the book, when the book first came, the actual printed book arrived at my doorstep and I opened the box, it was a little bit of a shock because I thought, gosh, what have I done? You know, um, you know, but I didn't I, write any of this. This was me. <laughs> exactly. It was me. That was true. Um, but I just, I didn't for a flickering moment. I thought, gosh, I'm, I've really put a lot out there, but there's nothing that I, I don't have any regrets. I'm really happy to have written the book and I look forward to writing my next books. 
And it's a great book. As a side note, you mentioned El Bulli, and for people that don't know, a lot of people know, but El Bulli was like for seven years straight, a lot of people would say it was the best restaurant in the world. Tejadria, he was a genius, and he still is a genius. How was it? Did you like it? I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. But, you know, the thing was, to be fair to him, what can I say? You asked me before about food and culture. I mean, the, I, I adore him and I loved that experience. And I still remember many of much of what I ate at those meals, but it was more like performance art than actually having a meal. You know, I mean, after the four and I ate there many times and I wrote about it for different publications, but there were times after a meal there the following day, All I really wanted was a rice dish and some jamón. I, I just wanted to make it go back to something simple. And I mean, it is so Catalan in the tradition of Salvador Dali and Gaudí. I mean, this almost demented creativity, which erupts occasionally in Catalonia, which is one reason I love that part of the world so much. And in this instance, uh, you know, Gaudí was architecture and Salvador Dali was uh, painting and jewelry and other things that he made. Um, and now we had, we had Ferran, who was using food to express himself this way. So uh, I considered the whole experience of El Bouilly uh, profoundly Catalan, and um, it was brilliant. But it's not, it's not everyday food. It's course, like going yeah. to the theater or you know, something yeah. like that. Don't you think it's interesting nowadays, more and more the trend is for us to go find more simple food and have more simple foods? than the quote-unquote the Michelin star restaurants. Even Michelin star restaurants, as you might and as you know very well, it changed a lot what it was. Nowadays, restaurants get two stars before getting one. Every, and it, things are a little different. And France, sometimes Paris, it still keeps very traditional, kind of like more regiment Michelin star kind of restaurants. But isn't that interesting how on one side you have chefs that really want to be on the spotlight doing this kind of stuff, but more and more people are craving just the the rice and the hummel. Isn't that interesting? How, how would you solve this? Because there's a little bit of a gap that might be growing or not or shrinking between those two things. Um, I think that the, uh, again, I think that, I mean, Michelin is Michelin and Michelin has, still has an enormous power over the food world. Um, but a lot of the basic assumptions that are built into the Michelin idea are 19th century ideas of Uh, you know, Escoffier and, and French gastronomy, and the world has changed hugely. And we, right now in Paris, we're in the midst of an enormous change because, you know, I mean, when during the 80s, like running a two-star or three-star Michelin restaurant became prohibitively expensive for a, an independent chef. So many of them moved into luxury hotels because the luxury hotels felt that they were an important part of their marketing and they had the budgets to pay for these restaurants, even if they didn't make any money. Now, a new generation of people are not, then people aren't going to that because a meal in one of those restaurants can cost 1500 euros for two, which is just an, insane. And um, so you have things like the Shangri-La Hotel in Paris shut down its two Michelin star restaurant, La Bay, which was excellent. When the Hotel de Clion, one of the most famous uh, hotels in the world on the Place La Concorde, reopened, they they turned the beautiful space that used to be their two-star restaurant with Jean-Francois Piège into a bar because the turnover would be greater in that space than a restaurant. This is happening in an accelerating pace in Paris. Le Grand Véfort, another one of the most famous restaurants in Paris, has just reopened with a whole new format. They're serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they've gone from an average bill of 300 euros a person to 50 which is, you know, interesting. I think that we're in the midst of a massive disruption. I think that there are a lot of people 
uh, younger people who read Instagram and and or follow Instagram and do things like that, they go out to have a good time. You know, do they do they care a lot about the food? I hope so. But we're in we've entered into a massive change at the uh, you know at the we're, what are we? We're a fifth of the way into the 21st century. It's changing, and this changing this change is picking up. And as you probably read, David, you know, uh, the Plaza Atene Hotel yep. is closing Alain mm-hmm. Ducasse's three-star restaurant. And I think that there's a move away from exorbitantly priced food and formality. And I think that the real luxury right now, which you put your finger on, is, for example, you and I might be the last human beings to eat wild seafood. I mean, the luxury of eating a freshly caught wild fish is huge. Every time I eat wild seafood, I'm humbled by it because it's, first of all, it's so delicious. Second of all, we know that the the oceans are exhausted. And so a lot of the fish we eat now is farm-raised, for better or worse. And I think that the, the subconscious fear and hope that we both have at the same time we want to heal our environment. And I think that the, the, the fear of living in a really badly damaged environment globally and global warming and empty seas and pollution and everything else is driving a desire for a healthy, wholesome, clean, simple food. Because when you look at something like that, you look at a, a freshly landed fish, it's, a, it's an enormous luxury to have that in your plate. Yeah, that's true. So shifting the conversation slightly, Alec, is there a, an island that you really like? Oh, gosh, I have so many islands. Today. I mean, you're, you are in one right now, but, you know, I, you can I, be I, out. Exactly. <laughs> is there an island? Just name, name an island you really love. I like Pantelleria, um, which is between Sicily and Tunisia in the um, in the Med- I love every island of the Mediterranean. I love Corsica. I love Sard- Sardinia. Um, Don't get greedy, Alec. Just one. No, I am greedy. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not going to stop me there. Um, and there's some great islands in North America too. I mean, we used to go to Nantucket when I was a child for holidays, and um, the food was pretty dire um, in those days in New England because food was not really a subject that a lot of people, or at least people, it was not a serious subject. You ate to, or in my family anyway, you ate because you needed to eat and stay healthy. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the genius of the United States is the immigration. And thank God for the immigration because the pilgrims and the original English settlers in North America had a pretty feeble and pathetic culinary culture. I mean, it was the Native Americans who showed them what to do with the local yeah. food. Yeah. And then thank God, successive waves of immigration brought brilliant things to eat in the United States. And in New England, of course, we have a lot of, we're very familiar with Portuguese food because mm-hmm. there's a large Portuguese and Cape Verdean uh, population. And a lot of that food, I mean, there were there was even, there was Portuguese bread and Portuguese pastries for sale in Nantucket when I was a boy going there on holidays. But mm-hmm. yes, I'm very greedy about islands. Well, okay. <laughs> so one of those islands, you can take, this is a little game. You can take a protein, a veggie, a fruit, and a dessert. Mm-hmm. You can go with your the island with your loved ones, whoever you want to go with. There's nothing that island, so the rest that you love in those islands don't exist. You got to get a little more tribal here. So, which protein do you take with you? 
Which protein would I take? Kind of, oh, seafood. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to say seafood is a category because I love seafood. That we cannot narrow a little bit, Alec, just seafood in general. <laughs> would, well, it depends on what island. I mean, you know, I would say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to Sicily. Okay. Because there I can get tuna, I can get uh, red prawns, I can get, you know, a Sicily bang in the middle of the Mediterranean. My protein group is going to be seafood. Okay. And which vegetable do you take with you to that island? Only one. Uh, this is the game, Alec. Don't okay. try to change okay. my rules here, okay? okay. okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I hope you're going to let me put some onions and garlic in my bag too, David. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do hey, with that. I you can do the you, whatever you want to put the garlic in your pocket. You can take the onions. Okay, okay. Onion. I'll, I'll go for onions. bring tomatoes because tomatoes, you can eat them fresh and they're delicious and they're absolutely indispensable in the type of cooking I like too. Okay, so tomatoes, the fruit. Okay. The fruit I would probably bring, huh, in terms of gastronomic things, that's an interesting, I would probably bring apples because I'm from New England. I still love, it's, you know, there's something vestigial in me in autumn of loving apples and apples can be transformed in a variety of different ways and they keep well too. And dessert? Um, another bottle of wine. <laughs> hey. If that's dessert for you, sure, that counts. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, that's good. What was your first memory of taste? I was very lucky growing up because, again, the people who really taught me to love food were my paternal grandmother who lived in Westchester County had a, a black woman who would come to cook for her. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And when I would go into the kitchen with her, she'd say, if you're going to come in here, you're going to work with me because I don't want you under in my way. Um, and she would give me things to taste. Her name was Emma, and Emma was from South Carolina. And she brought the traditions of Southern food north with her when she moved to New York. And uh, that food, whether it was fried chicken or the rice, I've never eaten rice that anything like what she cooked. I mean, she cooked, there were no recipes. Uh, she cooked cornbread. She made um, kale. She made greens. She made all of this food, which... Unusually, we ate in the North because my father's family was from New Orleans. So this, the Southern dishes, which were not common in the North in those days, that food was just stunningly, stunningly good. But also, you know, as a, as a child, my school, my, you know, my friends from school, there was one who had a Viennese grandmother who made the most delicious pastries that I'd ever eaten. There were a lot of Italian people, you know, Italian immigrants living in southwestern Connecticut, Italian food was a major part of our food landscape. Um, not the way that my mother made it, but real Italian food. There was Polish food. Um, so you had a bunch of options. That's what you're saying. You were very lucky. Yeah, I was yeah. extremely lucky. See, I had my first memory. It's, it's smashed banana with a squeeze of orange juice and sugar, and that's it. Uh, and so you have all of these menus. <laughs> That's my life. What's the most underrated food for you? Uh, underrated ingredient. Underrated ingredient. Kidneys are off page. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, you know, I do eat kidneys, but um, the most underrated ingredient. That's a fascinating question. Um, I still think a lot of people don't give the respect to vegetables that they are due, just as a whole general category. I think one of the most interesting things that's happening now is the way that many younger chefs, and this is true in Paris where vegetables were not really given a place at the table, 
vegetables have become not an afterthought or a garnish, but a really serious object of real thought and real cooking. I love, I love vegetables. So I think vegetables, but still, you know, I think that there is an enduring sort of slightly semi-macho idea that fish and meat are more important in the kitchen than fruit and vegetables. And I don't agree with that. I think that they are, you know, everything, whether they're pulses like lentils and whatever, potatoes, everything. For me, all of these things have value. The overrated ingredient. Truffles, you know, I mean, truffles. And I'll tell you why I say that, David. I mean, I think truffles is, it's one of the most ambient ripoffs in the whole world because there's nobody there actually, uh, there's no legislation about what truffles actually are. Most of the truffles in the world come from China and they have absolutely no taste whatsoever. So you could go into a shop and say, I want to buy a truffle. And, you know, unless it's a very, very reputable shop, you could be sold a truffle from China that has been seasoned with synthetic truffle scented oil and go home and then you cook it and you don't understand what doesn't taste very good. It has an interesting texture, but no taste because synthetic Truffle oil is an artificial product. You see it used a lot in restaurant kitchens, but it falls apart when you heat it. So the whole span of truffle products and things is a minefield. Real white truffles and real black truffles are genius products of nature, but they, as they exist in the world today, I would put quotation marks around truffles and say that truffles are a blinking amber light because they are so often not, and they're not uh, honestly what they're purporting to be. And you're paying for something you're not getting. Best breakfast you can have. I like all the Mediterranean breakfasts. I mean, I like, you know, I mean, pan tomate, for example, when I'm in Spain, the idea of toasting bread, you know, a quill of garlic, scraping it on the toast, smashing a tomato on it, drizzling it with olive oil. That is the most delicious thing in the entire year, you know, with a good tomato. I like protein breakfast. I think that, you know, cheese, you know, a breakfast is a great meal. I mean, why not start the day with something absolutely delicious? Breakfast is really good in Morocco. I like, I like all the, you know, breakfast dishes from North and North Africa. Um, Egyptian breakfast, like fool, the black beans, the black beans do is really delicious too. So, so I, I, breakfast is a favorite meal. I love breakfast as well. What is the strangest combination food-wise when people put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? Or, and, depends how you want to do this, something that you do that people will be like, really, Alec, are we doing this? (laughs) I don't do this, but I mean, I read recipes for things that are cooked in Coca-Cola or in, you know, I mean... You know, they're all, I mean, the internet thrives on gadgety things. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. internet is kind of like a swamp of improbable clickbait recipes. And you look at stuff and you think, am I really going to cook fresh shrimp in 7-Up? You'd no, be surprised. People are probably going to do that. I well, they know. might, you know, but I mean, why would you do something like that? You know, I mean, I think it's gimmicky, it, right? Yeah, it's probably gimmicky. And yeah. a lot of the other thing, too, that people forget is a lot of recipes end up out there, are put out there by major food producers. I mean, the recipes come from someplace and they're trying to get people to consume certain products for whatever reasons. Simplicity is my North Star. You know, I mean, if if you if I have a pound of freshly landed shrimp, 
like real gulf shrimp in the United States. I mean, most shrimp in America comes from Southeast Asia or Central America, but real gulf shrimp, wild shrimp from the Gulf of Mexico is so delicious that you almost don't even need to do anything to it. You know, I mean, yeah. um, it's the same thing with the red prawns from Sicily or the red prawns from Palamos in, in Catalonia. I mean, they're so, or in Southern Carabineros in, in, in Southern Spain and near Andalusia. Um, you, when you have things like that, I mean, the lightest touch, the lightest touch you should, is possible. And there's something you do that people like really can I'll confess a, a filthy secret. I Tell mean, me, Alec. One of my favorite dishes is spaghetti carbonara. And I have my own way of making it. I put a lot of garlic into it because garlic, without garlic, there's no life. I mean, garlic is the life force. Without that, there's just no... There's that's, no not, that's not too weird, right? That's not too bad. Tell that to the Romans, you know. Well, I mean, okay, but you know, I mean, the Romans are not listening to this podcast. I don't think so. We're fine. I don't think <laughs> I have a lot of listeners from you. Know, it's okay. never know in this world, but okay. um, you know, I um, my current obsession is with smoked salt because I think it's. I mean, it's a great thing. It's a great way to season. I love salt in general, uh, and every you know, the doctor's not going to be happy to hear this, but I, I love salt, and I love the, the the fact that salt is an expression of the sea that it comes from. You know, like that wonderful salt from the Algarve that is that's created right over on the border mm. there. I mean, yep. that's beautiful salt, and I have some of that. I have like twelve different types of salt. I mean, my my kitchen is a little shop of horrors of like fifteen different types <laughs> of olive oil and all kinds of salt and spices that I bought in markets all over the world. And um, you know, I'm the mad scientist. I mean, any good anyone who cooks should be a little bit of a mad scientist. Of you know. Yeah. The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Um, I'd like to think that I've been breaking more dishes. <laughs> I dared, you know, when the last time I ever saw my father, I'm the eldest of four children and I have a brother who's a, you know, ruler of the universe lawyer in New York and my siblings have very distinguished careers. And, but my dad, the last time I saw him, uh, we spent a week together for his 70th birthday and we're walking on the beach in Florida. And he looked at me when I told him that I just gotten this job at Gourmet Magazine and he sort of shook his head and, you know, drew on his cigarette and he said, well, I guess that's good news. And I said, well, yeah, actually, it's great news. It's one of the best food writing jobs in the entire world. And he said, well, then good. Um, but I think, you know, why do you write about food? I mean, Alec, you know, you could write about politics or business or other things that are more important. And I said, food is everything, Dad. You know, I mean, it is the most important subject here. And I'm sorry, I have to insist on the, pri the primary importance of food. It is every bit as important as what happened on, you know, the squalor on Capitol Hill in Washington or, you know, another political scandal or anything else. So for me, uh, and then he said something, which is quite lovely, rare thing that he said, because he was a rather austere man, but he said, uh, of all my children, I would never have expected that you, because you were so shy when you were little, you became the swashbuckling one who went out into the world and created this career that didn't even invent. You invented the whole thing for yourself. And he said, you know, I have to tell you, I'm proud of you. I mean, I just never, ever would have expected that you would do something like this. And you seem happy. And if you're happy, I'm happy. You know. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. This is another Portuguese phrase. 
Sellerfish is to tell to talk about you in this, you know, the book, you know, what people can can expect, where people can find you, where can people buy the book. Just sell your seafood, the whole seafood now platter, Alec. It's your time. Okay. I was I've been really flattered. I mean, the reactions to the book so far have been, you know, Bill Buford, who I admire enormously, who's one of the most important food writers in the US, who works for the New Yorker magazine. Um, I approached him about getting a pre-publication quote and, you know, tapping this extremely famous man on the shoulder, busy guy. I almost dropped out of my chair when he came back and said, this book is a flat out wonderful read filled with, with stories and secrets. I did something I've never done in my entire life. I was so engrossed by this book that I missed my subway stop in New York City because it just went by. I was so, he said, you know, I could not put the book down. Um, and he said, it's as interesting as a memoir, as it is as a human life, as a series of, you know, these these stories, the cameos, all of these things that happened to you, Alec. He said, you know, um, food is the, the, the theme of the book, but you're, you've had an, an incredible life and you've drawn back in, enough to be able to look at it and be generous enough to share it with a sense of humor and a certain humility so that, you know, you brought us, you brought, you offered us a place at your table and I'm grateful to you for that. And I think that's, you know, that is very much my intention. I mean, if I write about food, it's so that if you come to Paris sometime soon, David, I would want you to read what I've written and I hope it would bring you to a couple of great meals. My sharing of my life also is the answer to people who look at it, you know, through a fantasy lens and say, wow, how did you do that? And what I tell people is I took a whole bunch of chances and, you know, I did some pretty crazy stuff in my life. So um, I'm basically telling people, you know, follow your North Star. I mean, do what you want to do. We're not here very long. And, um, you know, again, as I said, my what are my loves? Food. Writing, language, travel, and and um, and reading, you know, and that's what I, I found a way. Thank God, I found a way to turn all of the things I love most into into a life. Perfect. And people can buy the book on Amazon. They can just you you normally will find it in your normal places. You can it's go on yeah. Amazon, and it's um it's it's sold. It's struck by many 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 good independent booksellers, and um, you know, all over the place. So yeah. I hope that, and as, I think it's a nice gift book. I think it's a wonderful read for the summer and for the fall and the winter and the, and, uh, the spring. But um, I think this is a nice time of the year for a book like this. And also now that we're able to travel again, the last chapter of the book are my 30 favorite restaurants in Paris. So with any luck at all, anyone who's you know listening to us right now will be able to get into an airplane and come see me and us in Paris and, you know, We've, as I speak as a Parisian, uh, an adopted Parisian, we've really missed the tourists. We've really missed the, I mean, the city's been slack and empty and sad. And we're really looking forward to having people come back again as of the beginning of July when vaccinated travelers from North America can can return to, to Paris. And some brilliant restaurants have opened, you know. Well, you've been away, so there's, we're we're waiting for you. We can't wait to see you. And there's some good, there's some great new food. And if you want more information on that, I do a website, alexanderlebrano.com, where I, I I do my most up to date restaurant reviews. Last year was pretty empty because there were no restaurants were empty, uh, but I'm renewing the cycle of my of my restaurant reviewing, both not only in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal places like that, but on my on my website, and also in my new newsletter. 
um, which you can sign up for on my website. Perfect. Alec, this normally goes a half an hour conversation, so we doubled. It's double the fun today, which is better well, for the I, listeners. I really enjoyed talking. I enjoyed it as well. You're, so what time is in Mykonos now? There? It's like seven probably? It's seven, yeah. Yeah. What's for dinner? Because that's the question. Um, we're a whole bunch of us, uh, because I ran into some friends from Berlin last night in the street, and then there were some there with some friends from Bulgaria. So 10 of us are going to a beach restaurant in about a half an hour. Um, so I think hopefully there'll be some octopus. Um, you know, there's going to be some there octopus tonight. Alec, thank you very much. This was a true pleasure. Uh, I encourage I everybody to buy the book. <laughs> And if I ever go to Europe, well, I will go to Europe, of course, soon. I will definitely let you know because um, it was a true pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, too. Thank you, David. Thank you. Enjoy Greece. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you, Alec, for coming on the podcast. This was a true pleasure. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at David G. Martins Chef. The same thing for Facebook. Also on Twitter, I'm on David Pods. We have two more episodes to go this season said i know the last episode is going to be a special one i hope for you to listen i will stop during the summer we will come back in september october i'm still debating on that one just let me know if you have any questions please do shout to me so i know you know guess i should have or not it's all up to you this was a pleasure the second season again but again we still have two more so don't be too sad i'll be back next week make sure you're safe make sure you're happy adios